0: Pleasure this morning. Before we do that, let's ask for God's help. God, we humbly want to recognize that unless you're in the room, unless you are guiding and moving, unless you're challenging us and spiritually remaking us, what we go through today is an exercise in futility. So we ask for your presence, your power, your insight, and courage. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, I thought we'd begin with a Peanuts comic strip. There's this one I read, it was quite a while ago. I've got the panels with me. It's a comic strip where Lucy is speaking with Linus about pleasure and meaning and fulfillment and happiness. She's at the base of a hill and she says, someday I'm going over that hill to find the answer to my dreams. Someday I'm going over that hill to find happiness and fulfillment. I think for me, all the pleasures of life lie beyond these clouds and over the grassy slopes of that hill. And Linus then removes his thumb and from his mouth points to, toward the hill and says, "Perhaps there's another little kid on the other side of that hill who's looking this way and thinking that all the pleasures of life lie on this side of the hill." And Lucy looks at Linus, and looks towards the hill, and yells, "Forget it, kid. <laughs> you know, the grass is always greener, right? We know what the grass is like on this side of the hill, but we're still looking For pleasure. And it doesn't matter if it's on that side or this side, that seems to be the ultimate end game. I think we need to admit this, AC3. We finally have evolved to this place where our culture is defined by hedonism. It's a fancy word. What does it mean? I got a definition for you. Hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence, synonyms, self-indulgence, pleasure seeking, self-gratification. Hedonism, the ethical theory that pleasure, in the sense of the satisfaction of desires, is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Now, as soon as I throw that out there, you think, okay, this is the part of the sermon where the pastor tells us that it's bad to feel good. That the pursuit of feeling good is bad. Well, I hope you are here last week because we began to explore the idea that inside of our, our deepest desires, we said, was revelation. In other words, there's a clue in your desires. They should not be cast out Wholesale. Because there's revelation in them that is a clue to the meaning in the universe. But when fate drops you off as a child in this world, uh, you don't know any of that immediately. You just know that you're inbuilt with a bunch of desires and longings and lusts and, and uh, hopes. And so you go about life uh, beginning to explore the satisfaction of these things, and it dawns on you that perhaps the world which has built these things into you holds all of the clues to the fulfillment of ultimate desire, even if you don't know what that really is. So you begin to explore. So you fall in love, and there maybe rests the answer. Or you think of traveling or, or being on a great adventure someplace, and you think perhaps the answer lies there. Or we plumb the depths of the talents that God's given us, and we have career success, and we live with a sense of purpose, and we think perhaps that is the great answer to the deepest longings of our soul. Now, catch a person in the middle of all those kinds of pursuits, and they may seem very happy. I mean, they've got the world by the tail. Uh, They think that they have found uh, that which their heart secretly has longed for since childhood, that thing that life first promised them when they launched out into this world. But then, it all falls flat. And friends, I just want to say universally, it all falls flat. That is to say everybody experiences desire disappointment. So to get what I'm talking about, when I say desire disappointment, you must not think about a person who makes bad choices or is afflicted with terrible luck. Don't think about the person with a bad marriage or a really lousy career or who experienced tragedy on a vacation that they took or something like that. Don't think about that person when you think about this desire disappointment disappointment cycle. I want you to think about the person with the best marriage that you know of, the best marriage possible, the person who's gone on great adventures and seen the best scenery and had the most amazing travels. I want you to think about the person who's had the best career, full of accolades and good pay and a sense of purpose. Because it's that person, even there, who experiences desire, disappointment. And when that happens, then it begins to be a clue to you that something is up. Because if a person is having the best of love, and the best of purpose, and the best of adventure, and yet still experiencing disappointment, something is going wrong here. That's a clue to you. And that's what we want to talk about today. Um, And there's a microcosm, you see it at Christmas time. Now think about how you anticipated Christmas as a kid. I mean, think about the, the calories you spent longing, dreaming. You know, all December was just basically this one long, you know. Desire and uh, and wait, uh, uh, waiting game for you. I mean, some of you it was you know, July Fourth is when it started, but you are deeply interested in this. The, the anticipation was all-consuming. The, the the last night, the night of Christmas Eve, because all good families always open their gifts on Christmas morning and not on Christmas Eve, and and so if, if Christmas night of Christmas Eve you're, or sorry, Christmas Eve, you're sitting there, and you're just overwhelmed with the anticipation of the gifts, and the presents, and the dreaming, and the wondering, and you're talking to your brothers and sisters about it. It's practically overwhelming. It's so, it's a delirium that you're caught in, but then morning shows up, and yeah, you're happy, and you can see, capture the picture of the kids' faces when they open up the presents, but then three hours later, and the living room is littered with wrapping paper and cardboard, and maybe in a silent moment, and maybe more as you grew a little older, 8, 9, 10, 12, squeezed in between the mayhem and the family gatherings and the toy that sometimes doesn't work right, or there's a feeling. Do you remember this? The feeling. It's not on Christmas morning. It's later on Christmas Day. This feeling, this persistent feeling of unfulfilled desire. Like everything was better in the dream. Like somehow it was better when you were just going... Like, Oh, the rapturous anticipation, it was almost better there than the actual reality, than the actual fulfillment. Now, if you can imagine that, that sort of begins to define life for us in many ways. Now, what are you going to do when that's your experience in life? You've, you've done the deep dive into love or, or purpose or adventure, and you're disappointed. I mean, it hasn't finally fulfilled, not in the way you hope, not in the way that the longing in your soul really led you to believe you could be fulfilled. So what are you going to do? C.S. Lewis is a great Christian author of the last century. If you haven't started reading him, you need to start. And, And he writes about this in Mere Christianity in his chapter on hope. And he talks about the fact that there's three different responses that people have to the desired disappointment cycle, which everyone goes through. And he says two of them are going to lead you into final frustration, and only one of them conforms to the gospel of Jesus. And so let's talk about them, because here's how he labels those three responses to desire disappointment. Number one is the fool's way. The fool, and by the way, when the Bible talks about fool, it's never talking about a person of low intelligence. It's always talking about a person who who can't seem to make an in-depth assessment of a situation, like can't discern the long-term consequence from the short-term consequence. So the fool here makes a, a really superficial assessment of the situation. He says to himself, this pleasure didn't work out, I need to try a new pleasure. This wife, she was fine, it didn't pan out, problem was the wife. This husband was okay, but clearly he wasn't Prince Charming, maybe another husband will uh, do the trick. This set of things uh, didn't satisfy, I must try a new set of things, more expensive things, more intense pleasures, a new career, a new drug. So." The guy on the fool's way is basically just saying he's doubling down. He's experienced a disappointment, and he just goes back for round two. He doubles down on pleasure-seeking as the means to satisfy his deepest, most heartfelt desires. And he just goes after it with incredible gusto, thinking this finally, that pleasure will finally satisfy this mysterious thing that everybody's after. Now, friends, as you look about the landscape of your life, I hope that you can see that the most bored, superficial, discontented people you know are on this path. You catch them in the middle of a high, yeah, they're all smiles, but everybody can see the context, right? And you see the context around this unmitigated, unrestricted pleasure-seeking is really shallow and full of a lack of contentment. There's a whole book in the Bible written to a person who's embarked on the fool's way. It's called Ecclesiastes. It's in the middle of your Bible. And it's all about this pursuit of pleasure to see if there's meaning and final satisfaction there. And so here's what the the writer of Ecclesiastes says. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 1. I said to myself, go ahead. I will test you, self, with pleasure and enjoy what is good. But it turned out to be futile. I said about laughter, it is madness. And about pleasure, what does this accomplish? I explored with my mind how to let my body enjoy life with wine and how to grasp folly. The last part of that might not make sense to you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, I wanted to be objective and wise, but I wanted to play the role of the fool, just a deep dive into the pleasure well. Right? That's basically what he's saying. I want to kind of hang on to objective wisdom while I just immerse myself in pleasure seeking to see if I could find the answer to the longing of every human soul there in pleasure. I mean, is that where it's to be found? Instead of uh, satisfaction, instead of fulfillment, what does he find? Madness. Madness. And there is a certain kind of madness in unrestricted pleasure-seeking, a kind of addiction, really. And I'll give you a modern example, because a great modern example is a person who has turned um, to pornography after sex has essentially failed them. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. What you find in pornography is that it is very much like a drug. We'll camp here for a little bit because it has become sort of a particular pleasure uh, epidemic in our day. Like any drug, any drug addict will tell you this, that you kind of become subject to the law of diminishing returns. What does that mean? Well, you have to up the dose, right? You've got to up the hit to get the same high, the same feeling that you had before when you first dove into the pleasure well. So pornography is like that. It becomes obsessive. It can even turn violent. I mean, you're watching very violent things to up the dosage of the stimulation, and it works very much in your brain. We're finding this out. Science is is really clear on this, that the effects of pornography on the brain are almost identical to that of cocaine or some other really hard drug. It can be all-consuming, and, of course, it leaves you empty. And this is a kind of madness. We're finding this out that porn addicts are saying, I'm not even enjoying it, but continuing to go after it. And so we find the truth that in the madness of this pleasure-seeking, that porn kills love, it ruins sex, and it is a lie. To illustrate, let's go to the godfather of porn, shall we? I'm going to tell you something about Hugh Hefner that maybe is a secret. In other words, you might not know it, but it's public knowledge if you want to research it. The secret is very simple. Hugh Hefner, the godfather of the Playboy Empire, uses porn. Now, you see This is not a shock to me, Rick. He founded Playboy, okay? So the fact that he uses porn is no big deal to you. No, no, think about it. Just for a second, friends, look at this logically. Why does a person use pornography? Or at least what do you tell yourself? What you tell yourself is that this is an outlet for sexual energy that cannot be met by real sex. So this is what's going on in your head. Because I have no partner or because my partner is unavailable, or because my partner is approved, because partner is the justification in your head. So you tell yourself, of course, real sex is the aim. That's what I want, of course. The goal any thinking sane person really wants is real sex. That's, of course, what we really desire. Really? Really? Because let's look at Hugh Hefner again. For years, the Playboy Mansion was filled with the most beautiful and sexually available women in the world, like a modern King Solomon He has gathered around himself a harem. But firsthand sources say that while he had access to these women, he ended lovemaking encounters alone, smoking pot, watching pornography. And if there's a more pathetic uh, image in your mind about the slavery of the fool's way, I don't know that there is one. We've envied the man, right? Like he invented sex, we've envied him. And you should have pitied him. A slave. And this, friends, is the final endgame of the fool's way. I mean, this is kind of what Ecclesiastes is talking about, that the problem or oh, the solution to desire is just a deeper pleasure. Just one more pleasure hit. You just haven't found the right pleasure yet. That's the only problem. So it's from woman to woman. It's from career to career. It's vacation hotspot to vacation hotspot, always thinking that the next thing is the real thing. The next thing, you know, that's going to be the fulfillment of your deepest longing. Friends, society, especially ours, and our churches are filled with people on the fool's way or people who are desperately trying to shrug off the fool's way. They come through those doors like a monkey on their back. They're carrying hedonism into church because it was foisted upon them by a culture that told them that hedonism was the only satisfying philosophy, that fulfillment lay in the fulfillment of desire. And you think about it like, what's it doing to us? I mean, it's it's really, it's killing us. Can we just admit that? It's killing us. Epidemic levels of divorce, drug addiction, painkiller addiction, porn addiction, serial monogamy, sexual confusion, and all the relational chaos and conflict and pain that goes with it. That's what defines us, and we're just going from pleasure to pleasure. This is the way. And we're not happy. It's not awesome. Our highest aspirations now as a culture are hedonistic. I mean, it's like we say to ourselves, what's the great?" grand goal of the human life, and it's stimulation and self-interest and pleasure. Like, you see it, actually, in our legislative battles that are currently making the news on the front page every day. What really, really, really matters to us? Like, what are we willing to mark the castle for with sticks and clubs and demand change to protect the weak, to resist corruption, to speak truth to power? No, man, we want a constitutional right to cannabis. I mean, that's what we want, really? Now, side note, I think that, you know, personally, if marijuana to has some additional usage, those should be explored. But look, friends, at what we've become. Look at what we've descended into. In the past, people have fought to end the brutal enslavement of, a, of an entire race. People have fought for the representation in democracy for people who were never represented before. People have fought for the end of the exploitation of children today, we're a society whose great moral causes revolve around free sexu- sexual expression and getting wasted. This is our grand and epic crusade. you got to fight for your right to party. We've become a Beastie Boys song. We've descended into a Beastie Boys song. That's, that, that, what, what are you ready to fight for? you got to fight for your right to party, man. That is our grand and epic moral crusade. So if we can all admit that that's a dead end. And C.S. Lewis suggests that by far the majority of people generally evolve off of the fool's way because it is so disappointing onto the disillusioned way. And this is where the author of Ecclesiastes seems to be headed. So listen to him after he's done his deep dive into money and sex and pleasure. Listen to him, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 10. All that my eyes desired, I did not deny them. I did not refuse myself any pleasure, When I considered all that I have accomplished and what I had labored to achieve, I found everything to be futile in a pursuit of the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So, in a word, meaninglessness. Chasing desire is like chasing the wind. And how are you supposed to put that in a box? It can't be done. It's empty. So, this is the guy who starts to downgrade desire in his life, like to treat it derisively, to say desire is a lie. Desire is a lie. The universe is bait and switch. And the person gets quite bitter. They begin to throw out their childhood longings as nostalgia and adolescence and romanticism. And it's not a compliment when they use those words. They're saying that the universe is a fraud. And they get to their 40s where I am and they start saying grumpy old man things. Like, sure, you feel like there's a great dream to chase when you're young. But when you get to be my age, you stop chasing the rainbow. Right? And maybe you're there now here's the deal about the guy in the disillusioned way he's actually pretty sane he actually becomes a much better neighbor and friend he's a much better citizen than the guy who's on the fool's way in fact he's much happier than that guy too why well even though he's a bit of a grumpy pants he's at least he's resolved to reality and the reality is this that there's nothing in this world Nothing in this world that will satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. And he's the least resolved to that. That is a fact. And because he's adjusted to that much truth, he's experiencing that much freedom. He's like the Jack Nicholson character, Melvin Udall, saying, what if this is as good as it gets? Now, again, this makes him something of a killjoy, a bit of a sourpuss at times, but at least he's not going along like the fool and, uh, uh, using people in loving things and making a huge uh, wake of destruction, thinking that he's chasing the elusive pot at the end of the rainbow. There's really only one thing really wrong with the guy on the disillusioned way, and that's this. What if he's wrong? What if he's wrong? I mean, what if he can catch the pot at the end of the rainbow? Then it would sort of be like an ultimate tragedy to find out too late that all of his sensible, dutiful, compromising with desires was actually keeping him from ultimate fulfillment. And he would find out too late. Now, here's where we enter the Christian way. Okay? So here's the third way. It's at this point that people actually sometimes stumble into a church. Right? They've actually gone from way to way to way. They tried the fool's way with a lot of youthful gusto and lust. Then they said, well, you know, can't keep doing that. Then in part they just realized it was too dangerous then they moved to the disillusioned way and maybe somewhere in the mix of that they stumble into a church but they've lived essentially up until that moment as if this life is all that there is, that this is all that there is, They're lived essentially as a functional atheist, whether or not they believed in God whether or not they believed in the doctrines of the Christian church, they lived as if this was all that there is and if you live like that, you're an atheist you're a functional atheist and I don't care what you believe over here on this piece of paper You're a functional atheist. This life is all that there is. Here's the thing. The Bible is so honest with you, it will tell you that actually if your premise is true, in other words, if this is all that there is, then that, the way of the fool, might just be the most logical way. For the Apostle Paul would say in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 32, if this is all there is, this is a long treatise on resurrection, he says if this is all that there is, then here's the conclusion. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, I, love the, I love the honesty of Paul. And he just says, look, if your premise is correct, this is the reasonable conclusion. But here's the deal. Here's where the Christian starts to reason backwards from his simple physical desires, food, sex, air. And he starts to reason backwards his metaphysical desires, and he starts to draw, I think, a very reasonable conclusion. The Christian starts to say to himself, wait a minute, creatures are not born with desires unless there is a satisfaction for those desires. So a baby feels hunger, hey look, here's food. A duckling uh, wants to swim, look, over here's some water where she can do that. A dog has an inbuilt desire to chew, see, here are Rick's shoes and his reading glasses and his very expensive books for that to be fulfilled over and over and over again. Not that I'm bitter about that. Therefore, so the Christian says, look at these physical desires, and they clearly have a physical satisfaction. There's there's no desire in us that doesn't have some satisfaction. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another and that's what the Christian begins to conclude: that there's something else, there's something more. That this isn't all that there is. C.S. Lewis again says, "If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy this desire, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. That's, of course, the conclusion of the disillusioned man, right? So that's that's not what it proves. Probably it proves that earthly dis- pleasures, he says, were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest." the real thing. And friends, if that's true, if your earthly desires were simply meant to lead you to ultimate pleasures of a spiritual kind, then that ought to change the way you look at pleasures of this world, right? Like that ought to adjust the way you're looking at pleasures, the pleasures that are available to you in this world. If pleasures of this life, like food, and sex, and nature, and art, and exercise, and music, and friendship, and beauty, if all those things are merely shadows of some larger thing, then you have to reject the disillusioned man, and you have to reject the foolish man out of hand. You have to, because they no longer fit in that perspective that these, these pleasures, these desires are merely like a mirage or an advanced warning. So, for example, you can never be like the disillusioned man and despise these earthly blessings, these earthly pleasures, and think of them as a lie. Think of them as a bait and switch and get kind of bitter and cynical about life. Well, love promised a lot of things, but look what love delivered. No, no, no. You must reject the disillusioned man forever because these are, these are advanced communique from God. They're holy things. Beauty and friendship and sex and food and air and nature. They're, they're beautiful little advanced communication from god arousing in you that thing of ultimate worth so these things are sacred even if they're not the real thing and that's why you also must reject the foolish man's way who he's constantly mistaking these desires hunger and sexual desire he's mistaking these things for the real thing as if that's the real thing you must reject that out of hand and stop treating them like some kind of God to worship, something to give your whole life energy to, and everybody else, get out of my way. No, friends, Christianity would say that these pleasures, are, they're just a copy. They're like, a, they're like an echo. The true satisfaction lies next. And so what does this middle way look like in between the disillusioned man and the foolish man? Paul will talk about it like this, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. This is the word of God. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable weight, eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary seen is eternal so ac3 christians keep alive in themselves it is a discipline it's actually a spiritual discipline to hope you keep alive in yourself this desire for the next country because that's your true home that's what you really belong to and you remember it says right here on your passport which was stamped on the day you were baptized and declared faith in the lord jesus christ you are not a citizen of this country you belong to another one and it's coming next. And so because of all that, we never let that ultimate hope get replaced by counterfeits like the fool always did. He's always throwing in counterfeits in. And we never let it get snowed under by cynicism. We become people of indomitable hope because we have another home. And in Christ's If you are in Christ this morning, and I know there's probably some of you kicking the tires and you're investigating, but if you have made this faith commitment to Jesus today, it is the sole concern of your life to press in onto that country and to bring others with you. That's it. That's it. You've got a very simple life ahead of you. It's to press on to that country and to bring others with you. Does that mean there's no pleasure in this? Oh, Certainly. We drink of these, as we talked about last week, because they are hints. They are advanced missives from that country, from the author of that country, saying true satisfaction is coming next. Now, there are going to be people who will push back against your hope because you're going to be a person of indomitable hope if you live in Christ. You're going to be a kind of person who sees joy in this world of sorrow. You're going to be a person who goes through trouble and hardship and persecution and you're going to see purpose in it. Like, what did he say? Our momentary light afflictions are producing. So you're a person who says, affliction produces. Now, Christians who don't think that way are denying the inheritance of their gospel. Because you're going to think like this. Affliction produces good stuff. And because you think that way, you're going to be a person who's hanging on to hope, even in the midst of depression or pain or... um, Uh, Terrible circumstances or bad luck And you're going to hang on to this thing And your neighbor's going to look at you And and think that you're nuts Like give up Like look at what's happening to you Um, You know stiff upper lip I get it But golly this whole heaven thing That you're hanging on to Pie in the sky by and by That's not for me And they'll throw that whole picture under the bus I could never oh really Sitting on a golden cloud someday for eternity Strumming a harp yeah No that no and they just degrade, dismiss the entire, uh, this entire uh, vision of what uh, the Christian hope really is. Well, if you want to answer that criticism on its own level, uh, which is pretty childish, what you can simply say is, uh, look, if you can't understand books written for grown-ups, you shouldn't talk about them. Because the Bible is written for grown-ups, and it contains a message that children can understand, but it's a grown-up book written for grown-ups. And some people have such a wooden way of reading it. It's like they're three-year-olds. They they claim to be smart skeptics. They claim to be, you know, deep thinkers, and they're reading the Bible in the most wooden, stiff, artificial, non-subtle way you can possibly imagine. It's like, put on your scholar hat for just five seconds and look inside the images of heavenly hope to see what's really being communicated. And so if you wanted to offer a more gentle and patient reply, which I would recommend could begin to explain these visions of the Christian hope. Music is involved in the pictures of the country to come because, of course, music in this world suggests ecstasy and infinity and attaches people to transcendence, and no one can deny that. And crowns are mentioned in association with heavenly hope because those united with God share splendor and power and joy, and as we're going to see in a minute, glory. And gold is mentioned. Yeah, streets of gold, the whole thing is mentioned because of the timelessness. You know that gold doesn't rust, right? That's why you can find a ship that's been sunk for 400 years and pull up the treasure, and it's not just a bunch of, you know, rusted out iron oxide. It's, it, it lasts, and it's precious. That's what's being communicated. See, people who take these things literally might as well think that when Jesus called us to be like doves, that he thinks that we should lay eggs. So we just have to have a much more subtle way of Reading and thinking about the Bible. And by the way, that's why we've done this GoPro thing and extended. I hope you stay for that because that's part of what we understand about good Bible study is when to understand metaphors and images and when to take the Bible literally. Friends, um, I just want you to look at how Jesus constantly calls you to see that your great desire is not in this world. It's in the world to come. And I'm just going to hit hit you with it. Look at this. Matthew 5, verse 12. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, Jesus said. Matthew 6, verse 4. Your father who sees in secret will reward you. And everyone who has left houses and lands, Matthew 19, 29. Brothers or sisters, father or mother, children or fields, because of my name, will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like... Treasure, Luke chapter twelve verse thirty. You don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. These are spiritual money bags. If you understand what's coming next, he says you can let go of some pleasures now because the ultimate one that's coming next is the one you really want. So be rich and lavishly generous. In this world, Jesus says, build for yourself an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, look at this, friends, and you see it is a shameless propagation of heavenly hope. I mean, he's just um, brazen about what's coming next and and asking you to, to, in, in a sense, in a to latch on to the idea of reward and not, be, not think that you're a mercenary because you're following Jesus for reward. Why would you be when every other page, you saying, friend, it gets really good. It gets really, really good. It's going to be rich. It's going to be a treasure. It's going to be lavish. It will be fulfillment. And that thing that all of your longings here have been pointing to, and he doesn't hide it he doesn't try to you know undersell it if anything he seems like he's overselling it because it's all he seems to be talking about c.s lewis will say um the staggering nature of this prize that awaits those who have placed all their longing on him is just enormous here's his word it would seem that our lord he's talking about jesus of course finds our desires not too strong but too weak he says, like we're half hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, think about that. Are you that child in the slum and you're making mud pies? And someone says, hey, Would you like to go to seaside Oregon and play on sandy beaches in the sunshine uh no I think I'll stay here with my mud pies our desires are too weak friends they're too weak you say oh I got a lot of passion in me but you just want a Lamborghini in the driveway you know you just want three weeks in Tahiti that's it that's it that's it You want a million bucks in your checking account. Oh, your desires are so small. That's all you want? Jesus promises you so much more. The problem with your desire, friends, is not that it's too strong. It's that it's too weak. And so maybe you might find a very different Christianity in the words of Jesus here this morning than you've known before. So just write it down, friends. The Bible affirms over and over again a happiness and a pleasure and a desire and a delight in the context of walking with Jesus and the hope for the country that comes next. Now, maybe in light of that, you'd have to admit that your idea of Christianity has been bogus. It's been all about duty and about lawfulness and a sourpuss attitude of toeing the line until you die maybe today maybe today you would hear in the words of jesus a message it is a gospel friends it is a good news that would thrill your soul that the possibility that christianity might not be muting your desires but asking you to turn, commanding you to turn up your desires up to god yeah but you may say oh that really sounds great but is that in the bible i mean is it really there there is a language of spiritual hedonism that you would not believe in the Bible. It's on every page of the Psalms. Let me hit, hit you with it again. In God's presence, says the psalmist. Psalm 16, verse 11, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 63, verse 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 42, verse 1. As a deer pants... For flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You know, a lot of you know this language, but you've never associated it with God. You know the language of panting for something, just desiring it with all your heart, but you focus it entirely on your material lusts. And have you ever imagined a day when that longing, that incredible desire, that comes from the deepest part of your soul will be lodged and focused on God and not on something else that you're chasing that's temporal and is just going to be something that's short term and doesn't last and doesn't satisfy imagine this language is a part of your relationship with God and then you maybe understand what it is to live in desire, live in desire and turn it up don't turn it down Friends, the language is everywhere. Now, I want to leave you with this. We're going back to C.S. Lewis again because he gave this amazing talk. It's a sermon you can download from the Internet. It's called The Weight of Glory. And it'll be worth 25 minutes of your time to read through that amazing treatise on pleasure and the gospel. And what he says there is that not only are we far too easily pleased when we settle for all these sort of temporal things, we focus on this this inconsolable longing and we focus it on money or sex or power. Not only are we far too easily pleased when we do that, he says we're also far too easily pleased when we're happy just to know God exists and just sort of keep him at arm's length. You know, you've done enough looking into the natural order and you're satisfied with yourself that there's reason and intelligence behind the universe, but God is pretty big and he's powerful and he's out there and you just, just keep him right there. And you're kind of scared of anything closer. You're far too easily pleased just to know he's there. Because so much more is promised. So much more is promised. A kind of intimacy that I dare say, friends, would scandalize you. If you could crawl inside the language of the scripture. Crawl inside the language of Jesus where you will share the divine nature. Where you will be... Fitted with a weight of glory that you cannot now imagine, that you are a creature of such potential glory that angels—yes, angels—will be judged by you. You. I mean, this is unbelievable when you think about the intimacy that's being promised here, the incredible fulfillment of all that you've ever longed for—is to be fully immersed in God, not just to know. Yeah, He exists out there. You believe that God is one? Great. Demons believe that. There is so much more that's promised that we will stand before him one day on judgment day. And because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be enveloped into him. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And again, from Lewis in that amazing sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says, that promise, almost incredible, and only possible by the work of Christ. In other words, you don't earn your way into that status. It's given to you as a gift by faith. That Some of us... That any of us who really chooses shall actually survive that examination. He means you'll you'll live through the judgment day because of grace. You will find approval, shall please God. To please God. To be a real ingredient in the divine happiness. To be loved by God. Not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father in a son. It seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. So it is. This is the promise. And the fulfillment of this longing that will, you will find on that day, friends, everything else in this world will pale in comparison. So how then ought you to live now? Well, I'll tell you a couple things. Number one, your light and momentary afflictions need to be right-sized because they are worth nothing in comparison to what is to be revealed. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 nothing in comparison I don't know what you're going through I don't but you need to stack it up in comparison to your Christian hope and friends guess what that's not pie in the sky by and by you will live better now every year every moment that you live now you will live better now if you live with one foot in heaven and one foot on earth As opposed to those people who live with two feet on earth and they're just going hog wild and what are they doing? They're missing out on the richest things that are available to us now and they're certainly missing out on life hereafter. They're they're blowing both shots. But you, with your eye on the country to come, are going to live better now and of course you will get in on the great fulfillment of the promise. And so friends, the other thing is you've never met a person who's not potentially this glorious creature and you've never met a mere mortal and so maybe it's time that we started treating people like that let's pray god in heaven i pray that you would put everything in perspective for us and turn up our longing and not turn it off and may we then find this great pleasure of knowing you and yes even that weird sort of pleasure of just longing that there's something beautiful and good in desire And help us, Father, to be kind of people that could live in desire and be able to say that ultimate fulfillment's coming later. And so we will live better now. We just know we will. We'll live with more sense of delayed gratification and we'll live better with our friends and we'll live more lawfully and more beautifully and we'll live uh, more lovingly. And so, Lord, may we live this way because we fixed our hopes squarely where Jesus calls us to put it in our reward, our great reward, for you delight to give us the kingdom. We receive it now, Lord, in faith, we pray through Jesus. Amen. Friends, thank you for taking in this series. I'm really glad that you're God's speaking in your life and changing you. If you've got a story to tell, maybe pull me aside at some point or another leader in the church. We'd love to hear what God is doing in you. We're going to turn down to invest, or to extend it, and we're going to talk about uh, really wrapping up how to study our Bible and get out of it all that it's worth. And so we're going to do that in two minutes. Next week, we start a new series, Lead Follow. And uh, we're going to see you there and hopefully see a friend that you bring. We'd love to have him. See you next week.